Thank you for joining us today. We are concluding our series, our first ever giving series on generosity. We've never done it before. Uh, we're actually not going to talk about generosity till the end. Because I'm excited for Trunk or Treat. Who's excited for Trunk or Treat? I see Eric's excited, Dr. Strange. Not a strange outfit, though. It's really dope. Um, so the Trunk or Treat is for children. It won't really, it's for everyone. But the candy's for children. So our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, and uh, if, if there's leftover candy after that, you just ask the person at the car. It's, it's up to them. But uh, I wasn't able to put together a trunk for Trunk or Treat because I don't think I would have been allowed to do my idea. And what I wanted to do was a modern recreation of an Old Testament animal sacrifice. And I wanted to be as authentic as possible. So we would have had to slaughter the animal, then dip our finger in its blood. And then you would have to take the blood and touch it to the horns of the altar. Now my trunk does not have horns, nor is it an altar. So I'd probably just put the blood on a taillights. Then you take the rest of it and you pour it out at the base of the car. And then you burn the fat portions and meat on the altar, which would probably be a grill in the trunk, which is also a bad idea. This is a bad idea on numerous levels. It's inappropriate for children. I'd probably be arrested for animal cruelty. And we don't do this stuff anymore. I, I think people have been to church here for the most part before. We've never had an animal sacrifice. But have you ever wondered why we don't do them anymore? They're in the Bible. Why on earth don't we do certain things in the Old Testament anymore? Now, the short answer that we will unpack is that we are free. God is all about our freedom. Uh, it's all over the Bible where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. Um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God makes us free. But what are we free from? And what are we supposed to do with our freedom? So that's what we're going to talk about today. That's why the title of the sermon is Freedom From and Freedom To. Because we're free from something to do something else. And right now we're free to pray. So please join me as we do so. Lord, thank you for your love that's available and present and waiting. And Lord, I pray that in your love you would help us to see one of the ways, one of the very unique and powerful ways in which you've made us free. And help us be moved by your spirit to use our freedom for the right things and to use it the right way. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we're going to talk about why we don't do animal sacrifices anymore or do other things like wear clothes of mixed fabric um, or, or reject clothes of mixed fabric, uh, we have to talk about the law. Uh, the law of the Old Testament established a God-given standard of righteousness. And we see the law start to really come forward in Leviticus. Whose favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? Yeah, me too. We should have t-shirts that say, I love Leviticus, so that they can stay there and nobody will ever buy them. But in Leviticus, God starts to really unfold the law to the people of Israel. And as Moses communicates this to them on God's behalf, they start to understand what it means to walk in relationship with God, to walk in covenant with him, so that if they do these things, they'll be able to walk under God's blessing and God's protection. So it seems like a very straightforward agreement. 
And we can see part of it, Leviticus 18, verse 4, which says, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. All right, follow the laws, follow the decrees. Pretty simple. God gives his laws to the people of Israel, and they eventually come to be known as the law of Moses, or simply as the law. Right, if it's something so short, you know that it's a very powerful and impactful nickname, the law. And this law, there's really many laws. There's a lot of them. Over 600, the exact number depends on who you talk to. The uh, individual and distinct laws in the Old Testament. It's an awful lot of laws. But the most important part of the law is who it came from. And we can see it there in the scripture. This comes from the Lord, your God. So as Moses is communicating these laws to the people of Israel while they're walking around in the wilderness, they understand that this is coming from the God who just delivered them in power from the nation of Egypt. They saw incredible signs and wonders. They saw God do right by them. So they understand God as the righteous judge. So when these laws come forward, it's not just an arbitrary or subjective suggestion of what they maybe could think about doing. This is an objective standard according to the moral law giver of what's right and what's wrong in his sight. So in keeping the law, they become righteous and morally good like their God. And God clarifies these things for them. So once these laws are passed down, I'm sure everyone in Israel was so eager to keep them. And the world lived happily ever after because the law was great. It's not how it happened. See, the law could show us what righteousness was supposed to look like. It could demonstrate it, it could portray it, but it could never produce it. The law failed to actually produce righteousness because the law itself was flawed by nature. The Apostle Paul was one person who elaborated on this. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were experts in the law. By the time a Pharisee was, or a growing, studying Pharisee was 12 years old, that young man needed to memorize Genesis in its whole, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The entire Torah by age 12. And Paul is an elite among his generation. So it's likely that he memorized the first five books of the Bible even earlier than 12 years old. And different sources will tell you that they memorized the Psalms and Prophets and Proverbs later on in life. But we understand that Paul is now writing as a Christian, as an expert among the experts of the law. And here's what he has to tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse, 13, uh, verse 10 first. Uh, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. Say everything. Continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So we have this law now coming down from God, which creates a standard of righteousness, but it also creates a curse. And it creates a curse because the standard is way too high. So let's assume that there are 613 distinct commands in the Old Testament. 
it was not enough to fulfill 610 out of the 613 laws in the Old Testament. That's a failure. Can you imagine going to school, taking a test with 610 questions on it, or 613 questions on it, getting 610 of those questions Failure. F. But that's what it was. It also wasn't enough to fulfill 613 out of the 613 laws every single day of your life except for one. Because on that one day, if you only fulfilled 612 out of the 613 laws, that's a failure. And the reason why that's a failure is because God is perfect. Therefore, his standard of righteousness must also be perfect. Anything less than perfection did not meet the standard. And that's one reason why the law failed to produce righteousness. The other reason why it failed to produce righteousness is that it changed human behavior, but it did not change the human heart. So if you ever had somebody who actually fulfilled 613 laws, they would probably then be filled with pride. And they would look down on everybody who only fulfilled 600 of those laws. You dirty, dirty sinners. Why aren't you more like me? And that pride is, of course, a sin. So the law continues to uh, fail to produce righteousness, and this failure results in a curse. And the word curse in this context refers to penalties uh, being handed down. When we hear the word curse, we think of uh, ghosts and witches, especially around Halloween. But this curse didn't come from a ghost or a witch or even the devil. This curse for failing to produce, to failing to produce righteousness by the law came from God. And that's why Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Physical death entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned, but spiritual death is the result of our sinful actions and our sinful nature. We're separate from God, who is the source of life, the source of all goodness and love and hope and joy in the universe. And if we're separate from him now, we'll be separate from him for eternity. But that's what sin does. And that's what the curse did. And that's what the law failed to address or do anything about. So here we are, as humanity, relying on this law that can't do anything to help us because the job's too big. But thankfully, someone else could get the job done for us. Earlier this week, um, I changed my filters for my HVAC system, my heating and air conditioning system. And when I pulled my filters out, I realized that they had been in there for longer than the recommended month. They were in there for three months. Because I wrote down the date, it was July 22nd. I'm like, oh no, this is bad, because now there's a layer of dust caked onto my filter. It's like the dust was filtering the dust. So I'm like, I should probably check on that heating system. But I am wholly unqualified to check on the heating system. I'm sure that job is too big for me, so what do I do? I call someone to come do the job, and thank God the heating system was fine. 
But we find ourselves needing to fulfill this law in order to be righteous before God, and that job is way too big for us. But thankfully, God sent someone to do the job on our behalf. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ exceeded the standards of the law. So Jesus arrives in the New Testament, and he begins his earthly ministry. And one of the first things he does is he preaches a public sermon that becomes very famous, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It was a sermon on a mountain. It's very, that's, that's what happened. So Jesus preaches the sermon, and one of the first things he talks about and focuses on and addresses is here in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus comes to fulfill the law, and the Greek word for fulfill here is plerao, which is where the, we get the English word plethora. It's probably where we get the English word plenty, too. Plethora meaning excess, more than necessary. And I think in the mind of an English speaker, it's probably more appropriate to say that Jesus exceeded the standard of the law because Jesus took the 613 laws of the Old Testament and he elevated them. He made them tougher. And that's why when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to say things like, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry at your brother in your heart. Because once you're angry, you're already guilty of the sin of murder. I don't know about you guys, but I've been angry before. I've never murdered. Angry, though. The standard's getting higher. And Jesus looked then at the crowd and said, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I think we'd agree, that's a good thing. But I say to you, don't even look at someone lustfully in your heart. Because if you look at someone lustfully, you're guilty of that sin. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your brother and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Not just pray for people of a differing opinion. Don't just pray for people who vote differently. Though we should. Pray for those who persecute you. Who actively and intentionally Look for ways to harm you on a consistent basis. That guy, pray for that guy. We already couldn't fulfill the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And here's Jesus raising the stakes, raising the standard. That's the standard that Jesus preached, and that's the standard that Jesus met. Jesus met that standard, and then he decided to pay the price for everybody who failed to meet that standard. So we refer to the animal sacrifices at the beginning. The wages of sin is death. The animals had to die because there needed to be death to stay and withhold the wrath of God. But the problem with those animal sacrifices is that they were never, ever enough. And they were never meant to be enough. That system was to be in place into an ultimate, greater, perfect, and final sacrifice could come forth. And one day from out of obscurity, a carpenter from Nazareth walks out 
And a man named John the Baptist, who's attracting crowds from across Israel, sees him. And when John sees him, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to exceed the moral standard of the law, and then he came to exceed the sacrifices. So when Jesus went on the cross, he paid the price for our sin in our place as the final sacrifice in the eyes of God. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. That pole or tree in other translations was a wooden Roman cross reserved for criminals. And in the eyes of God, that cross was reserved for us. And Jesus said, I don't want them to pay that price. I'm going to go and pay it for them. He paid the price in excess. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. And after being tortured and beaten, Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. Because he had exceeded the standard of the law. And three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he fulfilled the law, that he exceeded it, that he's the very God who wrote it in the first place. And now our relationship to the law changed because Jesus extends righteousness to us and frees us from the Old Testament law. So as Paul goes on in the book of Galatians, he writes this in verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So Jesus earned righteousness on the basis of the law. And after he earned righteousness, he has the right to extend righteousness. So it's a little bit like this. Uh, Jerrica, my wife, she was just up here. She works for a homeless organization called U.S. Vets. And because they're a nonprofit. U.S. Vets gets donations from local companies. They give money and they give gifts. The majority of those gifts go to the veterans. Some of the gifts are saved to be rewards for the employees. If you know Jerrica, you know she likes to exceed the standard, kind of like Christ. So Jesus received one of those gifts from a local company. The company was the Sands, which owns the Venetian. And the gift was a staycation at the Venetian, which we'll do next week. So Jerrica worked hard, and she earns a staycation at the Venetian. She earned it, but she's not going alone, because I'm going too. And our daughters, Allie and Astrid, are also coming. We didn't earn it, but Jerrica extended an invitation to us on the basis of our relationship to her. Jer Jerrica earned a staycation and extended an invitation to us. And we get to experience it because of her. So Jesus earned righteousness. And he earned the right to extend an invitation to be righteous to us on the basis of our relationship with him. And we can have that relationship with Christ when we have faith in him. And if you want to know what that relationship looks like and how to live it out and how to live it out, just talk to us after the service. Talk to one of the life group leaders. Life group leaders say, what's up? 
one of those awesome people, we'd love to help you have that relationship with Christ. But Jesus earned it all. He earned God's blessings. Jesus earned eternal life. He earned the right to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. And Jesus extends all of these things to us when we have our faith in him. So we're made righteous by Christ, and we don't need to earn it from the law. We don't need to kill those poor goats anymore. As a matter of fact, we shouldn't. We're free from the curse of the law. We're free. We don't have to spend seven days outside the camp. We can eat shrimp. We can eat all of these great things. We can do it. We're free. But what are we supposed to do with all this freedom? Now what? So when it comes to our Venetian visit, what I should not do is check in, take Allie and Astrid, leave the room, and enjoy the gondola ride without Jerrica. Like, hey, wait here for us. We'll see you later. You guys ready to ride a boat? How ridiculous. She earned it and gave it to us. So we should use this as an opportunity to love her and enjoy our relationship with her. And that's also what we should do with our freedom regarding our relationship with God. We use our freedom to love him back. We love God the way that Jesus loved first, in excess of the law. We are free to exceed the law's standard in our love for God and others. We are freed by Jesus to be like Jesus and to love like Jesus. And here's the fastest way to do that. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Second is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus explains another moments that the law, the entirety of the law, it hangs on these two commandments and the prophets and the wisdom literature while we're at it. The best response to receiving God's love is to love him back and to love other people. And the way in which we're supposed to love God is with all. The way this passage is written, it's meant to kind of go on indefinitely. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength, and with all of your emotion, and with all of your energy, and with all of your time, and with all of your finances, and with all of your education, and with all of your gifts, and with all of your hope, and with all of your joy. All of it. Love the Lord your God with all. Love the Lord your God with your all in all. That's what the commandment means. Love God with all. And that refers to being motivated by love for God in absolutely everything we do. But the possibilities and applications are endless. So where are we supposed to start? This is where the law becomes helpful again. Because it gives us an idea of how God wants us to love him back. He still wrote the thing. So we can do things like eat shellfish, which I'm very happy about. The whole thing about wearing clothes made of mixed fabric, 
my family would be worse off without that because Astrid, seven months old, doesn't sleep through the night, but her favorite pair of pajamas, 50% cotton and 50% polyester. And she can wear that. And we are not in sin. Some of those things don't impact our love for God, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. But the rest of it that does speak to our relationship, you should look at it. For example, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself a carved image and worship it. Don't make a statue and bow down before it. Honor the Sabbath. Still really good ways to honor and love God. What about the ones that have to do with our relationship with people? I spilled my water. And baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. Pretty good ways to love other people. So the law is pointing us in the right direction. And this includes giving and the tithe. And we'll end the series with this. But the Gospels, um, they're not necessarily written in chronological order. Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about that. But the, the Gospels are actually written by the writers, by Mark, who Mark was discipled by Peter. So when we read Mark's Gospel, we're actually reading the Gospel accounts, according to Peter. Uh, the Gospels were written by Matthew and Luke in order to speak to particular people. It's like their letters or their accounts of the life of Jesus are written more as sermons than history books, although they tell us fact about history. What's that mean? It means that the order in which these events are presented and the words of Christ are presented, extremely important, extremely intentional, and there's meaning. So after Mark writes and tells us of Jesus saying, love God with all, we find an example of how to do that at the end of Mark chapter 12. So let's look at that example. This is verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This woman knew what it looked like for her in her life to love God with her all. And this is not necessarily prescriptive, commanding us to do the same. I've been open throughout the series, and so is the minimum. But I'm not going to take all... <laughs> And give it to the church. I don't think my family would appreciate that. It would actually hurt our ability to serve God and live for him in the long run. But what we do is we look at what we have. And we know what it looks like for us to love God with our all. For our family, it's to use the tithe as a minimum. We give in generosity beyond that. We need to figure out what that looks like. For all of us to take what we have and love God all of our hearts and all of our soul and mind
and strength, and so on and so on. I wasn't even looking for this this past week, but I was scrolling uh, down social media on Tuesday night or so, and I ran into a modern-day example of what this might look like. Uh, In 1970, an American entrepreneur named David Green took out a $600 loan to start a business in his garage. And he was committed to starting this business and building it on biblical principles from the very beginning. He was a pastor's kid. He had his own relationship with God. He loved the Lord. So he said, I'm going to build this in God's way. And his business grew. And it went from a garage to a lobby because it's Hobby Lobby. And according to Forbes, last year Hobby Lobby had revenues of $6.4 billion. Big company. Valuable company. And David Green is going to take this big, valuable company and give it away. October 21st, he wrote an article, My Decision to Give Away Ownership of Hobby Lobby I chose God. And you can find this all over the place. I think he published it to Fox News first. Forbes picked it up. Everybody picked it up. But I want to read a few short excerpts from the article. It's a good read. But here's some of it. He says, From the very beginning, our purpose was to honor God in all that we did. We worked hard and gave God the results. And we were blessed by God. We saw it as a great privilege to give back back. We've been able to provide hope through supporting ministries and planting churches all over the world. Another quote, in Europe and other parts of the world, there are businesses that have been in existence for more than 200 years. We tend not to think about, we tend to not think like that in the United States. It's made me think more and more about the idea of building a business to last 200 years. A business that would continue to honor God reward employees with meaningful work and compensation, and be great contributors to hope and healing around the world. Throughout the history of the company, David Green has taken a significant portion of his profits and used it for the kingdom of God. So they've helped plant churches and send out missionaries, and they've done this for decades. So now they haven't published the details of what exactly this is going to look like. But the mindset is he's going to take the ownership of the company and frame it in such a way that the money gained through this business will be used in perpetuity to advance God's kingdom. And for him and his wife, this is what it looks like to love God with their all. And that's something that every Christian should figure out. Because we've all been freed from the curse of the law because of Jesus and his love for us. Jesus did the work. Jesus makes it right, makes us righteous. And as a result, we are free to love Jesus with our all. Even when our all brings us beyond the standard of the law. So in your love for Christ, with everything he's given you in your life, what does it look like? To love Jesus in freedom with your heart. Let's think about that as we pray. Lord, thank you that you went first and you loved us with your all. 
you didn't hold a single thing back. God the Father, you sent your Son. Lord Jesus, you gave your own life. Holy Spirit, you live with us now. You've given us far more than we can imagine. That you gave to that you wrote would also move us to love you back in the same way. And God, in a spirit of love and joy, help us to see what it looks like for us to love you with everything you've given us. Before we end today with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to create an opportunity. If you're here and you want to have that relationship with Jesus and you believe in him but you want to know what that looks like, would you just raise your hand on the count of three? One, two, three. Anybody here? Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Why don't we go ahead? I invite you to repeat after me. Um, we're just going to say a prayer to confess your faith in God out loud. And church, you can pray along with us. Say, Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. I believe that he fulfilled the standard of the law, earned righteousness, and offers it to me. I believe he died in my place on the cross and rose again three days later. Help me to follow you. Help me to live for you. Help me to walk with you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.